Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And welcome in, everybody. You're back. You made it. You're safe. Come around, huddle in, come by the campfire. Don't huddle in too close. We're here, but actually, fair enough. We're not huddling in, Kirk. <laughs> Keep track. This Make sure the there's at least six feet between oh. you. And in fact, okay, forget it. Just put it on the TV. We'll do it for our respective homes. Mr. Brown, how are you? I'm uh, I'm doing okay. How about you, Kirk? You know, same. I would say I'm doing okay, but this keeps on keeping on, right? And I'm referring to all of it. I'm referring to Let's Hear It, our little podcast. I'm referring to the interviews we're doing. And I'm certainly referring to this moment we find ourselves in. For sure. It's, uh, it, I don't know, we live in interesting times. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say, I would like to live in boring times. Is it, you know, I was thinking the other day, do you remember there was, there was, was about a time people didn't vote to elect president of the United States because nobody thought it mattered? Do you remember that? Yeah, that it happened doesn't once matter. That it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's like, they're all the same. Well, we have, once again, some really important and interesting content to get to, and I can't wait to have this uh, discussion about this interview. But I think you also have an announcement to just put out there on behalf of our friends at the the Communications Network. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Today is Wednesday, May something, the (laughs) May 13th. And on Friday, May 15th, is the deadline to submit a nomination to the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. This is the award that goes to somebody who has used communications to make a difference. And this year, uh, it was Desmond Mead, the Florida Voters Project, who was extraordinary. And I just really want to ask folks, if you think that there's somebody who's deserving of this, please nominate them, because the what we learn from those people in that whole context, in the process of doing that award, but also in hearing from the folks who were selected is so valuable to all of us. So please, please, please nominate somebody for the Clarence B. Jones Award if you know somebody who is a great candidate. You can just go to the Communications Network website to learn more. Clarence B. Jones Award nominations due Friday, May 16th? 15th. 15th, Friday, May 15th. What an amazing project. And that was such a treat when we got to uh, replay the keynote address from the Communications oh, Network Conference, right? On, and you on know the what? podcast. Folks, sorry to interrupt you, Kirk. Yeah, please. Um, you're such a nice person. Uh, yeah. Go back. I really, really encourage people to go back and listen to the Desmond Mead speech. Yes. It is amazing. Yes. It sends, chills up my spine. It's really amazing. So just go ahead. Stop listening to this to us and just go listen to no to to, to Desmond Mead. It, it was really fabulous. So go find it. It's back in there on Let's Hear It. So what, Ca- Let's Hear It Cast.com. What I love about you saying that not only was the Desmond Mead piece so great and again so generous of the Communications Network for letting us share that, but 
a great testament, I think, to the evergreen content that is Let's Hear It. You know, this notion, <laughs> right? That I believe these great conversations. testament to ourselves. This journey of discovery, I'll say it again, oh, it's a journey of discovery. <laughs> and I want to make a pitch, Mr. Brown, that even though the conversation that we're about to hear, the interview that you just had, that you're about to share, is very specific to a project running in this moment. When we come back and talk about it, I'm going to have all sorts of things to say about how it's actually evergreen. The ideas and the themes that you guys are getting into are relevant regardless of the circumstance. And this just happens to be the circumstance through which we're having this discussion. What do you think about that? Good Tell to know. Who are- this is... This is hard cheese, not soft cheese. uh, It has shelf life. That's right. It's going to be with us. So tell us who we're about to listen to, because this is, once again, once again, it's fantastic. I spoke with Alexis Madrigal, who's a journalist. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. And before that, he was the editor-in-chief of Fusion. And before that, he was a staff writer at Wired. He's a visiting scholar at the Information School at UC Berkeley. And he is the founder of the COVID Tracking Project. And the first question I ask him has a lot to do with Alexis Madrigal, a journalist at The Atlantic, being the founder of the COVID Tracking Project, which is tracking all of the COVID incidences across the country. So you're going to have to think about that for a second. And Alexis and his his team of merry fellow travelers, because this is also yes. a volunteer-driven initiative. So the COVID tracking project, Alexis Madrigal on Let's Hear It. Let's listen to your conversation, Eric, and then we've got a lot to come back to and talk about. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Alexis Madrigal, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's the co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project. Alexis, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Now, let me get this straight. The COVID Tracking Project collects data on a daily basis about testing and patient outcomes on COVID-19 in the 50 states, five territories, and the District of Columbia. Is that right? That is correct. Can I ask you a really stupid question? Sure. Why do you have to do that? (laughs) That's a really good question that we ask ourselves every day (laughs) as well. Well, you know, this all started basically uh, early in March when my co-author, Robinson Meyer at The Atlantic, and I were trying to figure out how many people had been tested for SARS-CoV-2 in the United States. Um, This was early in the outbreak, but we also knew that people were beginning to get sick. We knew we had outbreaks in Seattle and other places, and uh, and that community transmission had begun. But we didn't know how many people had been tested. The CDC had had been reporting that uh, information, and then they weren't. And we weren't sure how complete that information was or what we could get. And it just felt insane to us that um, everyone was talking about how few cases there were in the United States when we had no idea how many people had actually been tested. And we kind of hit upon this little hack in the system, which is that the U.S. public health system basically is very federalized. And you could go to each state and you could contact the states and get what they'd put on websites. And you could build a a little database of how many people had been tested. So we did that. And on March 6th, when we came to the final numbers, it was actually less than 2,000 people 
less than 2,000 people, when at that point, you know, from knowing what we know now, there were already tens of thousands of infections in the United States. And um, as soon as we published the story, a friend of mine from college, actually, this guy named Jeff Hammerbacher, who'd been an early Facebook data guy and then had gone into uh, bioinformatics and startup stuff, emailed to say, did you use my spreadsheet? And I was like, what spreadsheet? <laughs> and he's like, I've been keeping a spreadsheet of these numbers. And I was like, I sent him our spreadsheet. And I was like, oh, my God, we've been keeping this spreadsheet, too. And we, um, because we'd known each other for a long time and are good friends, we were like, well, you know, we could just merge these efforts and keep doing this, figuring that, of course, the CDC would start providing, you know, state-level data. Sure. Why not? Right. Yeah, because that is what national governments do. They provide summary statistics on important phenomena inside their borders. So we thought we'd be doing it for a few days. We thought, you know, this is pretty hard to do. We need to bring in some volunteers to help a little bit. So we, you know, put a quick form together and said, hey, you know, we'd love some help with this project. And uh, the third founder, the person we really see as the third founder, Aaron Kassane, joined up. And Aaron has been an amazing partner in this as well. And she had a major background in kind of these big data uh, newsroom projects. And so we kind of had the team to get started. Uh, we started bringing on volunteers and here we are, you know, two months later and we've seen nothing from the CDC yet that is like our numbers. And, you know, one reason we suspect that these numbers don't exist outside of this project filled primarily with volunteers is that when the White House put out its testing strategy, the numbers that they used were from the COVID tracking project, which was pretty stunning <laughs> to us. But we're glad that they were using the best available data if this is the best available data. We didn't expect to be like the pirate CDC. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, when you well, when you sign up to be a journalist, one of the things you you don't think you're going to end up doing is replacing or improving upon government data, correct? Correct. <laughs> and in life, you know, sometimes it's see a problem, it's yours. But this is an issue, obviously, of importance. What brought you to this? I mean, you, you talked about the mechanism of it, but why did you think that it was your job to begin to track these data in this way? And how does that help your reporting? Well, we, we thought it was our job because no one else was doing it. When we realized there was no number like that out there, I mean, this is all Rob Meyer, my reporting partner. He was like, this is the most important number in America. How do we know if this case number is correct if we don't know how many people we've tested? And I earlier in the week, I had written a, a story called The Coronavirus Numbers Are Wrong and Everyone Knows It, in which I kind of did a little international comparative analysis. Basically, every country was pointing to every other country and going, hey, your methods of collection mean that you're you know, shaving down the number of cases you have. But then when you kind of turn that lens on the United States itself, which was saying this about Iran and other countries, China, our data collection was clearly shaving tons of cases off. And in fact, as it turns out, we had less visibility into our outbreak than other countries that got hit earlier than we did. So when we realized that there had been this failure, not just of testing, but also of data about testing, and we started to see the way that the states were reporting and that they were reporting incomplete data, it just became kind of a classic accountability journalism project mixed with all these other elements, of course. But we felt like the best way to keep the heat up on the states to improve their data quality and the best way to keep the heat up on the on the national level was to keep putting out these numbers. And then what happened, people started to use them. And once people started to use them for different things, for forecasting, for modeling, policy analysts are using them. Um, and we found out that various different people within the government are using them. Once we knew that that was true, 
there was no going back till we were, you know, truly replaced by by an official federal source. People were relying on us, and and honestly, we didn't ask for it. This project happened to us, but we were sort of duty bound, as far as I'm concerned. And I would never want to look back at this time and not think that I didn't do everything I could. You know, I want to look back at this time and say, you know, if I even had the smallest chance of improving the situation around this pandemic, that I that I did that. I did the best I could. And, you know, honestly, this is, this is extremely hard on a lot of the people who've been involved with the project because it is largely volunteer driven, but also because none of us were expecting this. And the nature of this data gathering is painful. You're, you're putting numbers of deaths into spreadsheets. You know, it's very difficult to think about what lies behind those numbers. But we know from watching our volunteers and providing support to them in various ways that it's hard on people. No one wants to be doing this, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to. We have to. Uh, and I have to say, your coverage, which is really great, is also really bumming me out. You have a story about how we're botching testing, how we could have avoided the worst effects of the virus, and how our numbers are incorrect. Mm -hmm. Like, I try not to read you before I go to sleep, because then I have nightmares. How do you keep it up in the face of that? You're putting in these very challenging statistics into a spreadsheet every single day that represents real people whose lives are being affected, and you're covering what we can, I think, honestly say has been a really poor response to an international crisis. Do you sing yourself to sleep with lullabies? How do you keep it up? What is what is it doing to you as a reporter? You know, I think one thing is that we know that for for as hard as it is on us, it's, you know, the people who've lost their jobs, the healthcare workers who are have to risk their own lives as well as risk infecting their families, the people who've died, the people who've been sick for months. You know, fundamentally we're sitting in front of computers doing this stuff safely. And there's so many people who have it have it so much worse. There's there's uh, a protective effect of purpose, though, too, right? We know that we have a purpose here. We know we have a role to play. And not unlike, you know, being on a sports team or singing in a choir or these different things where, you know, you have a collective purpose that must be done every day. And you know that there's no cavalry arriving. Like at this point, the quality of this data is going to be dependent on whatever local journalists and community advocates and us can squeeze out of the states. We know that the quality of the data that we put in our spreadsheets is to say not making mistakes in data entry, making sure that our processes catch mistakes quickly and correct them and all those kinds of things. That the, the truly the historical record that many, many people will use and that's being written as we speak is on us. That kind of purpose is pretty rare in life, even as someone who works in a very purpose-driven profession, say journalism, most journalists are driven by the desire to get the truth and do these sorts of things. But even relative to sort of the normal job, it is, it's both a weight, but it's also sort of, in, in a weird way, it's a, it's a, I don't want to, honor sounds weird, but it's just like, if we can help, we're in a, that's actually quite a position of privilege. Like lots of people have to just go work for Instacart and endanger themselves and don't necessarily get to think of what they're doing as being, you know, contributing to the to the national effort. And we do get to think that and also don't have to risk our lives. And so I think that is one way that, you know, just keeping in mind our relative, you know, position within the world as well as, you know, just wanting to support all those whose lives are, are more at risk than ours. We're certainly learning about the value of good journalism right now. We all, as consumers of information, have to decide who to trust at these at this time. 
And for all the folks who listen to this podcast who fund journalism, I'd say keep up the good work. And for those who aren't, I'd say you should consider it because this does seem to be the bulwark against bad things happening or at least a way for us to understand how to make sense of what's happening around us. Are you engaging with journalists elsewhere, maybe even internationally, in which you're able to compare notes or get a better sense of how you can triangulate around public information versus the information that you know to be true? Yeah, you know, we are talking with journalists all the time. There's a, you know, the main organizational tool for the COVID tracking project is a big Slack, you know, with hundreds of people in it. And there's... That must be crazy. It's 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 really. I mean, it's one of the best sources of information about COVID nineteen that you could find. Which is nice, and um, you know, there's scientists, there's journalists, there's data people, there's you know, people who've been in this data for for now months. And yeah, we we do communicate with lots of different people. I mean, one of the things that I think we see is that the journalists in small places don't have a lot to work with. People don't get it, but we have a fairly big can. We have a big Twitter account. You know, we're we are housed at the Atlantic. We have some tools to help uh, drive awareness and and shed light on things that are happening. You know, if you're working for the uh, paper in Nebraska and you're trying to get your local uh, government or your state government to release numbers about race and ethnicity in the state of Nebraska, when you know that the meatpacking plants are largely uh, staffed by people of color and, and they're being disproportionately affected, you know, the papers don't have the same ability to to drive uh, accountability and change as they once did, and they just don't have the people to cover it in quite the same way. The East Bay Times is a, just a tiny, tiny fraction uh, of what it used to be, and the people who work in these places work extremely hard because they still feel the responsibility to deliver the news for their area. But, you know, they've been gutted by various private equity groups. They've had the business model just knocked to pieces by, by the Internet and the technology industry. And they're basically hanging on just with that sense of purpose that we were talking about before, just to get the, get the information out and, and try and, you know, take on the role of informing the public. You know, to the extent that we can support those people, and we, we try to in their fights in local places because we feel like, Bringing some national heat around some of these, you know, state and local issues can, in fact, help help drive change. And I feel like that's one of the roles that we see for the project. Yeah, and then uh, papers like the Oakland Tribune are just flat out gone. Yeah, that's well, you know, kind of converted into being the East Bay Times, but it's not the same. You're right; it's not the same thing. Part of a news group, and there's kind of mostly AP stories, and and I think people should know. I mean, funders should know. There's nothing coming to replace these things. You know, there's there's not these institutions of journalism that have been crushed. I used to have a lot of hope back in the aughts when I was working on a lot of these things that some other thing would arise to replace the papers, which were, you know, seemed to be failing back then, too, in the wake of the financial crisis. But nothing ever showed up and no one knows what it is. And, you know, there's plenty of exciting things in media. I don't mean to be a total downer like TikToks are awesome, you know, and <laughs> there's, there's plenty of great things to read and see and watch and, and all that. The sort of guild values that were developed by particularly newspaper journalists are you're not going to just easily replace that. And it's expensive. The margins are low. You don't always know what your impact is because you don't know sort of what corruption or graft you've avoided by having people with their eyes around. But, you know, I know one investigative reporter here named Darwin Bond Graham, you know, and we were at 
one particular thing where there was some, you know, an event where there was some sort of obvious shady dealings. And I was like, how many of these kinds of things happen, you know? And he's like, oh man, just all the time. <laughs> but I'm only one guy. There's probably only a handful of investigative reporters in the entire East Bay. It's millions of people. It's, uh, it, it's a bad situation. And I don't think that people quite understand how bad it is, particularly at the local level. Well, one of the things that you are also uncovering or examining in a way that not enough people are, I think, is the fact that COVID-19 isn't affecting all communities equally. After the break, I want to talk a little bit more about your other special project. So we're going to take a quick break and be back with Alexis Madrigal of The Atlantic. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And we're back with Alexis Madrigal of The Atlantic, who's a co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project. And you are also now collecting data around race for the COVID racial data tracker. Can you talk a little bit about that? What are you learning and what are you doing? Sure. So one of my colleagues, a, a contributing writer for The Atlantic named Ibram X. Kendi, who's also a professor at American, he runs the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center there. He's a National Book Award winner. He, in early April, he was looking at the outbreak and he was seeing that A, there wasn't demographic data on testing and deaths and cases available from the states or anywhere else. And when you thought about what caused people to be in high-risk situations, um, it was pretty obvious that uh, people of color um, and people of lower socioeconomic status were going to be infected at higher rates because if you can sit behind a computer and not go outside for two months, you're not going to get um, infected. If you've got to be working out in the world and you're an essential worker and you can't get out of it, you're going to more likely to get infected. And that's to say nothing of the like pre-existing structural like health disparities that I'm sure many funders who work in that realm are, are well aware of. So he wrote a series of essays calling for the release of this data and asking, why don't we know the race and ethnicity of people who are dying of this disease? And I got in touch with him and I said, listen, you know, we haven't tracked this so far because we haven't seen it, but states were starting to come online with some of this data. And like, do you want to partner on this? And we build out a way of tracking this information. And so we've been working on that. We have like a beta release out. We've been tracking uh, the information for coming up on a month now, uh, twice a week. The individual data varies in quality a lot, and the individual disparities in different places are different. But if there's two things, there's really two top-line things that I, I hope everyone listening to this takes away from this. African-American death rates are astoundingly bad, and it's pretty—it's not in every state, which is really interesting, but in a lot of states. So like Washington state, for example, doesn't show huge disparities, although the black population is fairly small. Whereas you look at, you know, in Alabama or Louisiana or something, it's different. Some of that has to do with the concentration of black populations in metro areas. So when you look at the state level statistics, some of that gets obscured. But it's it's in a lot, a lot, a lot of places. The other uh, group that's being hit disproportionately hard and that just pops out of the numbers are Native American populations. You know, you look at the numbers for Arizona and, you know, just way overrepresented in deaths from the disease. And then there's one other quirk, which is that we only have three states that are reporting testing data. But in those three states, which is Kansas, Illinois and Delaware, 
there is a, a, a racial gradient to test positivity rates. So if you look in these places, you see that by far the highest test positivity rates uh, are among, you know, what are the Hispanic population, as it's all these states call it. And, you know, that probably speaks to two different things. One, that there are a lot of outbreaks in Latin populations. And the other is that there's probably some pretty serious differential access to testing, um, either because, you know, people are afraid to go to the doctor because of documentation status, or they're just straight up denied care, don't have money, or what, any of these other things. And we, we can't really pull those things apart from the numbers that we have. That's conjecture. But if those numbers seem hold across the country, or even in more, just a few more places, it's a really wild thing. The good news, this I would say this is unabashed good news, is that so far, quote unquote, Hispanic populations are not overrepresented in death as a, uh, relative to the population or relative to the number of cases. In fact, quite the opposite. There's a lot of infected Latins and not nearly as many dead Latins. And we don't really know why that is either. It may be, I think, the most plausible thing we've come up with, just as a conjecture, is that it's an age structure effect, like that a lot of the Latinx population that's getting infected are younger and so you don't have the same problems, so, but we don't know. And that's one reason why we need all the states to release, release data. We need as much as possible so that we can try and understand the actual dynamics that are going on here, not just on a virological level, but kind of on a sociological level too. And you're not just jumping from lily pad to lily pad. You've been looking at the issue of race for quite some time. I understand that you're working on a book about how Oakland has been affected by money and power of all the thinking that you've been doing about the book. And you also did this really interesting podcast about containers, which looks at global commerce and how we're all interconnected in one way or the other. How have these different things that you've been working on, and you are clearly an overachiever, helped you make sense of what you're seeing right now in this at this moment? Well, I think there's a few things that you could say. I mean, one is that you can't have global economy without having global disease outbreaks. I mean, you're going to have, if you're having people fly back and forth, people are sharing pathogens and it's just a, it's just a fact of life. It's been a fact of life for hundreds of years. It is faster now, certainly. You know, if you go back and read a journal of the plague year, it takes a long time for the plague to get from like the Netherlands to England. But once it gets to London, it really starts to do damage. And, you know, here, obviously, that's all those timelines are much shorter. I think that really says something. You know, astronauts talk about this thing they call the overview effect. You know, they fly up out of Earth, they look down and they see all the blue and the green of this, you know, marble planet against the background of space. And it provides them with a new perspective that, you know, humanity really is all in it together and the Earth is our home. I kind of think at the very opposite end of the scale of size, you know, you, you go many powers of 10 smaller and you see this virus that's actually driving the sort of pandemic overview effect for people to have a dark version of that where they also realize, you know, we're, we're all in it together. And, uh, you know, for me, as someone who studied a lot of history, I just always come back to a guy named Richard White, who wrote uh, a lot about the late 19th century city, American city. And at that time, you know, fire and disease are raging over cities, life expectancies are low. Rich people in these places tried to build systems that only protected themselves. But ultimately, like disease and fire doesn't, infectious disease and fire doesn't work like that. And he realized, and this is in, you know, Richard White's words, that, you know, the, the city was a ship and it would sail or sink as a whole. 
And that's where you get a lot of this uh, municipal services that that are universal, you know, water and fire and sewer and those kinds of things. And what comes out of it, of course, is the engine of America, these massive urban manufacturing centers which power the United States, um, you know, through the 20th century. We solved this, you know, communal, communitarian problem, and it unlocked all this new potential in the economy and in the cities and in the sort of dynamism of America. And so for me, I do hope, and I'm not really a religious person, but insofar as I pray, I would also pray that that, th- that something could come out of this that's the same, that people realize that the social safety net isn't just to protect the people who fall into it, it's to protect everyone. And I think that's really what's going to be necessary here. My honest opinion, and I'm not a political scientist or an economist, but I have been looking at this a lot, and I do not understand how you get to anywhere but just giving people money through this thing, like just cash. I just can't see other ways out of this. Doing that, though we have done it in different guises and under different, you know, disguises in America for a long time, that could lead to some really major changes. And the last thing I'll say about race, sorry, it's sort of a long answer, but um, the last thing I'll say about about my work in Oakland is that my work in Oakland has really been centered around a woman um, named Margaret Gordon, Miss Margaret, as she's known in Oakland, and her group, the West Oakland Environmental Indicators Project. You know, she taught me a few things. One was about the importance of collecting data on your own, which, you know, she's gotten word from the Obama White House for Citizen Science for the work that they did collecting air quality data there in West Oakland to challenge the sort of prevailing data gathering systems. It kind of led me to one conclusion about sort of what my overarching goal for the world um, is in the United States, at least my overarching goal for United States policy. And you're ambitious and you get things done. So I'd like to hear that. (laughs) Well, you know, yeah, I mean. In, in this in this work, you know, I, I came across a guy named uh, Dr. Tony Eiten, who works for the California Endowment, uh, who's actually on our advisory board of the COVID tracking project. And he did early work with Miss Margaret and, and other folks around Oakland to look at um, life expectancy at very small uh, spatial scales. So, you know, say the census tract or whatever. And what you find when you look at American cities like that is that there are huge disparities, like the difference between Nordic countries and some of the poorest countries in the world it, within American cities, you know, 10, 15 years of life expectancy difference. Honestly, I just don't think that's, that's justifiable under any system that I can imagine. Sure, people can disagree about how much money people should have. People should disagree about, you know, overall levels of economic inequality. But when it comes to how long people are going to live, I just cannot believe that anyone doesn't think that everyone deserves to have the same life expectancy when they're born. And the most important takeaway I had from a lot of Dr. Iden's work was that people, it's not for a lot of reasons that people might imagine that uh, life expectancies are different between these places. Um, People die of the same things in poor places as they do in rich places. It is that they're dying earlier. You know, they're dying of heart disease, they're dying of cardiovascular problems, and they're dying of diabetes, uh, cancer. All this work to me in, in, you know, the last several years of my, you know, professional career has been kind of driving in this same vein, which is just that, like, we, we need a system that generates equal outcomes on life expectancy. And whatever else needs to happen to make sure that life expectancy can be the same, I feel like it's a life project to drive towards that. One of my old friends and, you know, colleague at the, former colleague at the Atlantic, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I was always, you know, in our early careers together at the Atlantic, uh, kind of jealous of him because I felt like he had 
from a very early age, like a clear overarching project, something that he was working on and that everything he worked on slotted into it. And I, I didn't in my early career, I didn't feel like I had that. And then just in the last couple of years, finishing the book, which is now in edits with FSG and then, you know, working on this project, it all really is kind of coming together for me around this idea of basic life justice, you know, like life and health justice. That's, that's what I want to work on, because if we can get that right, if we can get that core goal alignment in the U.S. right, I feel like so many policies uh, would be better. At the very least, you've uh, branded it really nicely because life justice sounds like something that everyone would want. They have to. I mean, I think I just show me a person who would be willing to say that, you know, on the basis of where you're born, color of your skin, ethnicity, documentation status, whatever. Tell me someone that just goes, yeah, it's, I'm fine with you dying 10 or 15 years. Yeah, right. Somebody else. You just it's inescapable that that does that, that cannot be how this country works. And in Oakland, where you live, even in the same zip code, people could could live 10 years longer which yep. is an astonishing statistic. It's, it's one of those things that makes you really question the way that things have been set up at very deep levels, because it, it's, it's not justifiable, you know? <laughs> it's just not. And it doesn't have to do with biological things. Um, it has to do with the way that we've structured society. And I think, you know, to return it to the top of our conversation, thinking about COVID-19, it, it has been astonishingly easy for white upper middle class America to ignore the continuing health disparities, particularly among black populations, but among all, all people of color to varying degrees. And I hope that if there's systemic change that comes out of the response to COVID-19, it is that people realize that those disparities cannot continue to exist, not only for, you know, the good of Black Americans, Mexican Americans, Vietnamese Americans, but for everybody. This should be just a core part of what it is to be an American, is like working for the elimination of those things. Like that is the only way that we can sort of fulfill the promise of the country. And, you know, that's, that's taken it pretty big. That's a pretty wide angle. But I feel that's what drives me. And I think a lot of the people on our team, as we've watched the way this pandemic has played out, as well as the way that the racial and ethnic data has come in, it's clear as day that this is this is unfair, even with the most universalizing virus, which no one has any immunity to. Some people have immunity that comes from non-biological sources. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I... I completely agree with you, Alexis, and the idea that if at a moment like this you can't dream big and begin to think about what could be, then, you know, when could you? And the work that you're doing, I think, shines a really good light on that by providing numbers that you can see about what's happening, and, and people can actually learn from that in a way that they can use this to build a better argument and to kind of cr create a much deeper understanding about where we need to go. Your writing is fabulous. If folks are not reading you, Alexis, they should be. I can't wait to read your book. What's, what's it going to be called? Does, do you have a title yet? Don't know yet. Particularly, ah, okay. particularly now that everything, you know, we're probably going to need another round of revisions at this point, for sure, to deal with the kind of latest changes. Good thing is, Miss Margaret is very healthy. Doing I'm fun. so glad to hear uh, that. Lots of projects at her house. That's good. <laughs> uh, That's fabulous. Yeah. Well, you know, Alexis Madrigal, thank you so much for taking the time. You are amazingly busy. Right before we were getting on, you were just putting out today's numbers. So you are up to the minute. I really appreciate you coming to talk to us. I appreciate your work on the COVID tracking project. 
and uh, really best of luck. Thanks for thanks for doing what you do. Great, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really do appreciate it. Thanks again. And we're back. So, Mr. Brown, first I want to start with, how did you find Alexis? How did you get him <laughs> to talk to you? What went on? And, and, and the fact that you had to do this all virtually, too. And by the way, can I just give you high marks for jumping into this COVID moment and just really digging in? Because we, we've, we've had you. some, we're not trying to be breaking news at Let's Hear It. Suddenly, we're just all about the times all the time. Because we got- Thank you, Kirk. Your approval means a great deal to I, me. I have nothing but the highest esteem and admiration for the work that we're seeing here. So how did you how did you do this? How'd you track that? Oh, Who, by the way, seems like he's a pretty busy guy. Seems like he's got some things going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, for starters, we were supposed to speak, and he kept saying, sorry, we're, we're getting our numbers in right now. Wait, 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 wait. We're going to have to tweet them out. No, no, no. Okay, hold on one second, because we haven't. We still have to report what we learned today. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a little So he's actually really busy reporting the numbers to America about COVID that the federal government isn't doing. Oh, my so God. So I just wanted to say that part. You can figure out how you feel about that, but good heavens. Uh, and as for tracking him down, you know, maybe I should be an investigative journalist myself <laughs> because I had to use all sorts of tools like Google to <laughs> go to his website where it said, here's my email address. And I emailed him and I said, would you be willing to talk to us for this podcast? And he said, sure. Oh, what a talk about generosity. This podcast Amazing is nothing, nothing but an essay in generosity. And your, so, yeah. your very first it. question to him, your very first question, why do you have to do this? Oh, my God. <laughs> and he said, that's a really good question. When, in fact, it's a terrible question. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's unbelievable to me. Uh, I'm holding my head right now. It's it, right. True. We get into this business about how our needs are not being met in many ways. The other thing that it, it points up, and maybe you're going to have a question to me about this later, is the role of journalism in a pluralistic democratic society and how important guys like Alexis Madrigal, who see a problem and take it on for the USA and the world, because what he is he and his colleagues at The Atlantic are doing are providing this essential service that we're not getting otherwise. Well, here we are right into the evergreen content, right? Because when he starts talking about his impulse and he gets there too, towards the end of your conversation about his motivations and his feeling of just wanting to be part of just of service, right? To this moment and yeah. do whatever he can, even recognizing that, you know, the work he's doing as important as it, as it is, doesn't involve him risking his life, say the the way our service workers are risking their lives or, you know, the people in our factories or the people in our healthcare institutions, but this sense of purpose he brings to the work. And you, this is this thing about this journalistic instinct. It's, it's not only so valuable, isn't it? The public interest part of it, but doesn't it feel like it's not teachable? It just feels like you've got it or you don't. Do you agree with that? Or what do you think about that? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I think that everybody has an impulse to do some that you know we all have these things that we want to do and we want to get it out there the fact that we make the the profession of journalism available to people gives them an outlet for it mm -hmm. and it may be that people and, and journalism is changing for sure <laughs> to wit i am sitting in my wife's closet talking <laughs> on a podcast 
and that will go to dozens of human beings. We're practicing something. I don't know if it's journalism, but it is it is giving us the opportunity to communicate with many people. And I think that we need these huge institutions. We need the New York Times and the Washington Post and, heaven forbid, even the Wall Street Journal to have the resources to be able to go and sh- sniff out the stories. But we also need, and the Atlantic, for sure, which is, a, you know, an august and old institution. Uh, but we also need all the other stuff. And again, I don't want to bang this drum too hard, but if you are funding an issue, if you're a funder and you're funding an issue, you also need to fund the information that gets wrapped around your issue so that people understand it, so that they can use the information, and so that, heaven forbid, the institutions that are supposed to be providing information, if they stop doing it, that you have some kind of infrastructure that picks up that work. And that's what Alexis is doing. And it's it's amazing, and it's kind of a miracle, but it's also possible because we still have these journalistic institutions and and then folks can work in these jobs and they get a they get an itch and they can scratch it and and it makes a difference how is it possible that alexis and a bunch of volunteers are compiling a set of data that even this white house referred to when it was trying to make (laughs) announcements related to this crisis it's just that is such a bizarre crossing of realities. I can't even I can't even wrap my head around it. I can't even wrap my head around what it means. It's Alice in Wonderland time, Kirk. <laughs> it is just getting curiouser and curiouser. I don't know. I don't know. It's three months ago, we couldn't possibly have fathomed this conversation. Maybe we could have, but it's it just gets weirder and weirder. It's astounding. One of the notes I took when I was listening to you guys talking. Um, we're apparently sophisticated enough to at least recognize what's happening in terms of this Alice in Wonderland world, but seemingly not sophisticated enough to fix it. And that that disconnect doesn't exactly add up to me. It doesn't it doesn't quite jive in terms of what's going on. You mentioned specifically that. that well, every therapist I ever said said re- recognizing you have a problem is the first. <laughs> there you go. So now you mentioned, and you just brought it up too. I blame my mother. Yeah, that's right. That's right. She hasn't listened to the podcast, so I can do that. So the coverage at the Atlantic, you referred to it being excellent. And it made me wonder, um, you know, the Atlantic has been terrific. Do you have a perspective? And I've heard others asking this question, you know, where are people going to get reliable, solid information sources on even what's happening with this crisis? And, um, it seems like all of the issues with our, you know, multiverses of, yeah. you know, information pods are just uh, at the fore in, in even how people are interpreting what common sense looks like these days. But what do you think about that? I mean, would you say the Atlantic is one of the touchstones? Are there others that you'd point out? Well, the Atlantic coverage is fabulous. Do not read it before you go to bed. You'll have nightmares. <laughs> yeah, you I mean, made that really. Clear depressing. I mean, I went down the list of all those stories, you know, we're botching the testing. We could have avoided the worst effects of the virus. The numbers that are coming out are messed up, that kind of stuff. So it is not, you know, light reading. I think that right now, and I think as particularly as we're going to move into what I guess could best be called a recovery phase or the next phase, Mm -hmm. that the really, really local journalism institutions will be particularly important. Mm. It's where people can go to figure out how to access resources that they need. It's where they're going to get the information that is not the thing that gets 
covered by the the big nationals, what's happening in your community, who's making what kinds of decisions, how you can play a role in making a, a better recovery that's fairer and more just. So that's so I'm reading here in San Francisco, I'm reading Mission Local, which mm. is very, very local. And there's there's just about the San Francisco public press is another one that's doing amazing work on ninety nine cents. Wow. So I think again, if in your community, in your region, my guess is that there are these outlets that need your help. And if you have an extra couple of coins in the couch, that'd be a nice place to deposit them because I think that that kind of information is going to be really, really, really important for people who are left, who are otherwise kind of left out of the picture. Yeah. You know, as we wrap up our discussion about Alexis and his extraordinary work with his you know, team of colleagues and volunteer supporters, the other piece that you guys touched on, and we're going to hear more about this in an upcoming episode too, is this notion that um, while COVID-19 is a threat to everybody, seemingly, it's actually not true that it's affecting everybody equally. And, not. and I would just be curious to hear you reflect on that a little bit more. It's, you know, it's funny in the midst of just remarkable heartbreak, this just feels like it's another dimension of the heartbreak. But then back to some of the evergreen themes in this conversation, but part of me feels like, well, what does a crisis do? A co- you know, a public health crisis. It just it just refocuses our attention on these other endemic inequalities that are part of our lives all the time. You know, that that we may or may not pay attention to enough adequately. And a moment like this just brings them out in stark relief. But what do you what do you any reflections on that piece about what Alexis is working on? Well, he's exactly right that. When things get tough, it's invariably toughest on people who have the least amount of resources, who have been in one way or another told that they don't matter. And I'm talking about people of color. We we're going to have a conversation in a couple of weeks with a woman who did a report about the effect of COVID on women of color. So we see class, we see gender, we see race. And we, we just have to really be aware of that. The other thing that we're going to talk about is what happens next. Are we going to take this opportunity to try and come up with a new, better way? You're going to use this moment to actually make a better country, a better world, so that we don't end up going through this same mess again. There's a lot going on. There really, really is a lot going on. But this is not an equal opportunity virus. It is it is really hurting people who can't work from home, who can't shelter in place. We've all seen stories about this, but it, it is true. And it's time for us to come up with a way to put together a system that allows for that, that understands for it and, and prepares for uh, coming up with a fairer, more equitable system. Ah, there I am on my soapbox, but <laughs> I, I, I just really believe this. I get all wound up. But uh, I really believe that's true, and we're going to do a lot. We're going to have a lot of conversations about this and talk to a lot of people with, with varying ways at going at this. Well, thank you, Alexis, for taking the time. Eric, thank you for tracking Alexis down. And um, to all difficult. of yeah, <laughs> I difficult. still, I still congratulate <laughs> you. And uh, thank you to all of you who keep uh, checking in, plugging in, stay safe, stay socially connected, but physically distant. And uh, be well until we hear you next time. And let's hear it. Well, thanks, Kirk. That was fun. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. 
we'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it.